The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to Business is Boring. Marissa Fong co-founded Madison Recruitment and grew it to be the largest independent agency and to a big sale in 2013. In the years since, Marissa has been a leader supporting other leaders through outfits like the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, Flying Kiwis, Global Woman and New Zealand Asian Leaders. And highly active as an investor and director of great companies like Weirdly that we've spoken to and currently the chair of the board at Simplicity KiwiSaver. Marissa joins us now to chat her journey. Tanakwe. Oh, morena. Hey, thanks so much for being in here. Um, really excited to chat a little bit about um, about recruitment and uh, your journey today. So tell me, how did you get into that industry in the first place? Hmm, yeah, that's a good question. And like I think a lot of recruitment consultants will relate to this. Uh, you kind of go into somewhere for an interview and you're looking for a job and you're looking at the other person on the other side of the desk and you think... I could do that job. I'm sure of it. <laughs> so I thought, mm, I like what uh, that's about and did a bit of research. Um, and it, I think I must have been really keen because I actually applied myself to finding out what actually, uh, what characteristics, strength, traits, whatever needed um, to be for you needed to be a great recruitment consultant. So I went and asked a lot of people. And um, the first thing they said was, oh, it's not about just liking people. It's actually about sales. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, what does that mean? Because, you know, I was pretty young at the time. Um, and really what it was came down to was the ability to influence others. And so um, I thought, well, I'll go and, and really go and pitch myself. And that's what I did. Applied to all these jobs, didn't have any experience, basically got knocked back quite a few times. But I must have been really, really keen on doing it So I, because I kept on trying. So, And then finally, some small little company gave me a chance. And, and I was really good at it. Like, I really, you know, sales is a weird... Um, kind of almost dirty word, uh, especially back then, you know, it was like, oh no, sales, you know. Um, but actually I reframed that and I this before I knew about things like reframing. And it was really about uh, deciding why am I doing this? Do I believe in it? Um, and I really did like wanting to help companies and people finding the best matches. And so I ended up doing it and was really good at it and then moved up pretty quick. How does the industry work? As you've mentioned sales, and it's also super about relationships, hey, because yep. you need to be able to know lots of people and keep lots of people and connect with people quickly. And and I guess kind of like there's an element of matchmaking and kind of intuition about where people are going to fit as well, hey? Yeah, it is. And it's, I think it, one of the things that I've realised I'm really good at is reading situations and understanding, reading, being able to read the room and f- get a vibe, feel for the vibe of the company. And so I think most people, when you walk into a, a 
a business or a company, you get a pretty quick feel for what that company's about. And this is this intangible thing that people talk about all the time, right? Like culture. So what is culture, you know? So when you walk into somewhere, you can pretty much feel it. Um, and I think it was something that I was really good at. I could walk into a reception area, meet the receptionist back in the day when, you know, that was the way it used to work. And uh, you'd meet the hiring manager, you'd get a pretty quick um, feel for what they were about, you know, what their values were, uh, and a lot of the languaging that they were using, but did they really mean it, you know? So then you were thinking, okay, what kind of person would fit with this person? And what did they need? And how self-aware were they, you know? Uh, and often, you know, you kind of find some people were, and some, and you knew they'd be great to work for, and other people you go, oh, this, this guy's going to be tough, or this woman's going to be a bit tough. So you kind of know you've got to find somebody who's really resilient, <laughs> you know? And um, so, yeah, all that kind of intangible stuff, the stuff that made the magic happen, because all this hard skill stuff was easy, right? They'd say, oh, I need this, you know, accounting skill or blah, 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 this qualification, that kind of stuff. Um, back in the day, that w- it was easy, not that easy now. And so, um, yeah, it is about relationships. It's about demonstrating the understanding of that kind of match thing that makes because so you're the unspoken stuff, you know, like the people that that um, are really articulate can maybe uh, tell you, but the people that maybe just don't really know what they want, and it's really being able to work out for them, and uh, and yeah, come bringing it together. And so when you get a few good fits, and you start to get a a, a level of trust, really making sure that you're working for the benefit of both sides of the coin, and that's that being met in the sandwich type thing, right? So. Yeah, it's a, I used to equate it a little bit like um, real estate agents. It's a little very similar thing. You've got the person that pays for your service and the person that doesn't, but you've got to kind of make sure they're mutually happy. Yeah, but unlike real estate agents, you only kind of keep growing and keep getting clients if it sticks and yeah. they keep coming back to you. Hey, yeah. so there's a real... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and how does the... Um, how does the industry work? Because I think when people first start learning about recruitment and find out that like sometimes when someone's placed, you know, it's like 30% of their income or three months of salary or something, and people go, whoa, that seems like a <laughs> lot of cash. So yeah, yeah. How, how does it all work and why are there those numbers? Well, I guess the issue is that when you first, most most recruitment consultants work on a contingent basis, right? And so that basically what that means, I mean, I don't know many jobs where you kind of do something for free before you, you know, and, and, and don't, you don't get paid until you get a result. Uh, and most, you know, consultants, even services, you know, you kind of pay for the service as they're going along. And so there's no guarantee of outcome because you might be working on something really hard and then they, the client might have given it to some other recruitment consultants as well. And so it's a really um, the f- person that gets the best match quickest and you've got to really – so unless you've got a really great relationship because we kind of like didn't really like working like that, it's a pretty much a bit of a gamble. So that's probably why the high fee basis because there's no guarantee. And so you've got these – You've got a, you've got people you're paying on salaries and this kind of thing, working for you know, no money yet, and so you got to recover that in the win. <laughs> and so if you think about it, if you worked on ten assignments and you only filled four or three, you know, you've wasted a lot of other time on the other seven, and and the person that's paying you or you you yourself, you've got to get paid somehow for the non-productive work. So that's kind of where the, that those fee structures come in, and, and it's high. Yeah, it is. I mean, it might be a better model, and if there are models out there that recruitment consultants and agencies have worked to, which is more a retained basis, 
um, or, you know, the company says, look, we don't like it like that, but we'll just pay you an hourly rate. So there are new models now. It's not just that sort of success fee. Yeah. But like, you know, people complain about it, but then they go, oh, it can't be that hard. I'll just inbox some people and do it. And then they quickly <laughs> find out that it's actually really hard. It's really and hard. They, and yeah. they go back to pay. And, and like now that you're not kind of working in recruitment day to day, you can probably, you know, d- dish on it a bit more than people who are in there. <laughs> but like, um, but yeah, I mean, you must have like some really good weeks when, you know, yeah. everything lands yeah. and you're like, woohoo. But yeah. then there must be yeah. some there must be some yeah. lean weeks. Well too. the thing is you're dealing with people, right? And in any any industry profession where you're dealing with people as a key your key commodity almost. I mean you don't want to call them commodities, but you're basically dealing with people and then your product. And of course people are not always straight with you, right? So you know, you think you're you think you're going on the right track, you think you're doing the right stuff and you and you really have got something great for this person and then, you know, they ring up and go, Oh, you know, thanks for that job offer from that client, um, but I know I'm going somewhere else. I've got this other job offer. And, you know, if you're a good consultant and, and you've got good relationships, typically, hopefully that won't happen because you've got some really great trust with that candidate um, and same with the client. But sometimes people just do lie. <laughs> and so, Keep, yeah, Keeping their options keeping open. Keeping their options open and you get it, right? You can't get angry about it. Sometimes it just happens. But, yeah, it is um, a tough industry. So, so you've got to be a certain kind of person. You've got to be really resilient. Right, like really, really resilient, and really like people, and forgive people for that crap, and just move on. Because if you kind of get hung up on it, and you get all sort of, you know, upset and angsty about it, you just you'd never survive it. You'd never survive it. <laughs> so you came into the industry, and then you, you know set up set up um you, you know co founded Madison Recruitment and built that up over um you know kind of. What, 10, 10, 10 15 years? years. Yeah. 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 And and then built it up into the largest independent in the country. Um, so what was that journey like, like um, growing the business? Yeah, it was an interesting thing because it, we didn't have that plan. It wasn't a planned thing to go, oh, we're going to grow this business from the get-go into something really big. It wasn't – it was fairly – I think we were. A, 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 it was really success based. The more success we experienced, the more we had to grow because you you either you can't really stand still, and um, so we started off two of us. You know, Winnis and I, and she's brilliant, great business partner to have, and we were, you know, very determined to do things well. So quality was really important to us, and to do what we said we were going to do, and to treat candidates with respect and dignity, because you know, they, and it'll, it happens all the time. They were saying, oh, you know, consultants, you know, consultants, they never get back to you. They don't tell you what's happening. They don't keep you updated. So we were like, no, no, we can do this differently, right? And so. I think it really was based around just kind of basic stuff, you know, quality, communication, um, being good to deal with, not getting antsy about stuff. And um, so we just kept growing. And we were had a, interesting enough, when we first started, we were like, I think executive recruitment's going to be really fun because they seem to have so much, you know, time and they go golfing on Fridays and they take their clients out and you kind of only work from, you know, nine to whatever. And so we thought, we'll do executive recruitment, even though we'd, neither of us had really been in that space before. So um, we started off that way. And uh, we realised, oh no, that's too slow for us, <laughs> that's too boring. And so we actually ended up going into, um, back in there, that those times call centres were really big and being established. So we ended up uh, working in the call centre space and recruiting high volumes of people. And one of the things that we didn't realise was we were building IP around uh, amazing processes about how to recruit 
for large numbers quickly and still retain value um, and, and deliver value and great quality people. So it was all around our um, psychometric testing. It was all around all that kind of, you know, literacy, numeracy testing, so that we were really delivering cream of the cream, even at, you know, kind of like customer service levels and, and temps and all sorts. So that got us a reputation and a niche. And uh, then we were wanting big projects. And I think because I'd worked for a big company beforehand, a big uh, global company, I behaved as I was working for. I was still working for a big company, even though we were a small one. So we pitched for big contracts um, and, you know, didn't think that we shouldn't because just because we were small. And we would win them. And when you win a big contract, then you've got to gear up and hire more people and, you know, do the delivery and make sure that that, that you can deliver to what you said you were going to. And so we built grew really fast. We grew really fast year on year. It was something like 150 to 200% year on year for years. And uh, so we outgrew our offices within, you know, we had this tiny <laughs> freaking little office in O'Connell Street, which was hilarious because it was this tiny little room and it had this old fashioned elevator lift and it would, um, it, downstairs they used to store um, fruit and veggies for the restaurant across the road. And of course, um, the chefs used to go over there during their breaks and just have a little bit quiet, a little doobie. And, uh, <laughs> and then the little, and the fruit flies that were kind of, you know, down there would kind of come up the shaft, the lift shaft, slightly, you know, uh, and come into the office. It used to drive me mad. But anyway, it was, it was good times, but we outgrew that really fast and just kept on going. And so I think the thing was, just as much as we were supporting our clients with growth, we also looked at the way we did things internally. And so before all these things were, were buzzwords like culture, values, that kind of stuff, um, we had some really clear tenets about how we were going to operate. So things like, you know, treat our candidates the way we would like to be treated, you know, always communicate with our clients to make sure that our clients knew where we were at with their assignment and deal with each other the way we'd like to be dealt with, you know. And those were just very three core basic things we lived to. And I guess that really helped us manage the way we internally dealt with each other and grew and it made it a safe space. I think now, I mean, I didn't, we didn't know these terms back then, right, about psychological safety and being in a safe space, but that's basically what we were creating. And then the other thing was just having lots of fun. We just were all about, you know, laughing and having a good time and then working really hard and working hard together when uh, things got tough, you know, we were really busy and things were tough and, and high pressure. So, um, and, you know, Winnis and I were like, well, we're not going to not do anything that we don't expect you to do. So we were like, we, had a, we were on a tea towel rotation, you know, we'd take the tea towel home to wash and we were on a schedule, you know, stuff like that, that meant we were all in. So, yeah. And having built that company up, you exited in 2013 for what was a big exit at, at yeah. 2013. Um, tell me about the decision to having built up something that, you know, was your own culture and was your own kind of place. Um, what, what was it like that, you know, deciding to sell that? Yeah, it wasn't a. We, it wasn't kind of an intentional thing. We didn't go and say one day, okay, right, we're over this. We, we're going to sell it. I think what we got to was after I remember the two thousand eight GFC, and it was pretty tough. And we were ten years old at that time, and so we were like, oh, this is this is this is getting hard. You know, it's it's tough. And we went through some. You know, we didn't. Um, necessarily decline. We were in very good space in terms of diversified services and revenue lines and all that kind of stuff. So we were actually doing okay. But I think we realised, look, um, we need new expertise in the business. We need new 
um, ideas. We need new blood. And so we brought on a... Um, we had an advisory board, and on that advisory board, we had a great um, person we thought would be a really good, uh, perhaps incoming COO, CEO. And so um, he he actually came in on a contract basis. And um, once we sort of felt, felt, yes, he was the right fit and had the right value sets, we then put him into um, the CEO role. And he kind of put out a little bit of an article, and it was a bit of a fishing kind of lure thing, saying one day, you know, we, we may, I know when it's in Marissa, we'll be thinking about an exit. Well, well like, next minute, there was this <laughs> approach, right? So so it was a bit earlier than we had anticipated, and um, so it wasn't really a very, you know, in, what do you say, planned uh, kind of exit. It was very much that they had approached us, um, we had we entertained discussions. We had actually been approached quite a few times before, and we weren't we weren't ready. We still saw lots of potential and growth, uh, but once we realised that actually, yeah, we are interested in um, something new and 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 what and looking at new stimulus, new ideas, then we thought, yeah, okay, well, let's see what these guys have got to say, and um, and so we had discussions on and off for quite a while. Actually, it took us. Over two years, for two years of kind of yes and no, yes and no. And, you know, they were a listed company, so they wanted to give us script and, you know, as well as cash. And we were like, no, <laughs> we don't want script. You know, we, we just want cash. So <laughs> <laughs> so that's why it took quite a while until finally we, we settled on a number and we were happy. Yep. Ah, that's awesome. And we'll be back in a minute with Marissa Fong to hear about helping other leaders lead governance and angel investing. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market. The opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. And we're back with Marissa Fong. So, hey, you've then gone on to be super active in leadership, especially in organisations supporting women and diverse and Asian New Zealanders uh, in business. Tell us about moving into that role from um, having had that successful exit and built that big company. I guess when you've been rowing your own canoe, you don't realise as women, as that there are challenges for other women because you kind of you are the the decision maker, you are the person at the top. 
And so when we had our company, we really didn't understand this kind of narrative. And to be honest, we were so busy growing the company, we weren't. And we and you know our company was woman dominated, female dominated. So. I guess we never really saw the problem. And so it was only as I um, exited and then realised, actually, my experience is not the same as other people's experience, you know. Uh, and I got involved in Professional, which was um, through someone I met, and they asked me to chair it. And so when I actually listened to the experiences of other women where, you know, they were, they were encountering quite different issues in corporates, typically corporates, and that were not... Um, necessarily female dominated, maybe at sort of seven different levels, but at the upper echelons, very much male dominated. And so, and and you know, having issues trying to scale, get up, or climb up those those ladders. So when I realised that actually they are actually issues for other women, I thought, no, I want to. This is not right. <laughs> you know, how do we how do we stop that? How do we get better um, at elevating women and so that they don't exit because there is this, all the research says, you know, at a certain level, they'll get to a certain level and then they look up and they go, oh, that's not for me. And they exit and they'll either go into a boutique um, firm or they'll do their own thing or they just sort of say, no, that's all, they'll just stay at wherever they are and they'll not want to aspire to get any further ahead. And I think women and having more women in leadership in in what research tells you is better for the organisation, right? So what could we do? And so that's how I got involved. And I, I just thought, yeah, we, we need to, to to better advance the conversation and actually have things that work. So I'm not, I know, what I know about myself is I'm not very good at lots of the talking. I'm really wanting to see practical solutions and how do we actually make things happen? So... Although I, you know, membership of all these things, I think that the best way I can help is actually create um, tools or ways that that women can actually be seen. And so, Professional did a really great thing. They created um, this thing called group mentoring, and it was really a one mentor to five mentees, and. You know, you could do it within an organisation, and we had some really great companies um, do it, uh, have a trial and have a go at it, and they got some great results. So what we were seeing was that women in a mentee situation could support each other and learn from each other as well as the mentor. And and having one to five meant that you weren't, you know, having this kind of very limited scaled impact. Um, and I love, you know, a lot of organisations really do mean well, but I think this one-to-one where we're just elevating one woman at a very high cost, you know, something like, oh, we'll send this woman on a $30,000, you know, leadership program, it's it's fine, but it's just the, the impact is kind of limited. You know, it takes a long time to get a lot of one-to-one programs. You know, how many women can we afford to pay $30,000 to go and do? So this one-to-five, when we had five co- um, groups together, that's 25 or 30 at one time, made sense to me. So the more we can get this one-to-many type situation where we can elevate women makes a big difference. And then there's, you know, the startup community, which I just also love, you know, the more women we can get into enterprise and doing something interesting and growing their own, rowing their own canoes like I did is is, is something that's also um, really interesting to me as well. Because yeah, recruitment is quite an unusual industry in that it is woman dominated and yet it doesn't have, like many uh, woman dominated industries, systemically poor pay rates and 
um, terrible conditions, yes. you know. And if you look yep. at nursing and teaching and yep. you know rest home support yep. and all these areas, yep. like, and you go, oh well, that's that's um that's pretty yeah. shit. Yeah, because it's typically not uh, being. If you look at any organisation that's run by women or owned by women, that hopefully typically isn't the case. But unfortunately, you get these kind of norms that have been around historically um, forever. And and so, yeah, we do need to change it We because, I don't know, if you've ever been in a hospital, if you've ever been, you know, the, the work they do is incredible, right? So, so and, and as we learned through the pandemic, you know, wow, how, how, how would we have done without those core essential people doing amazing things in hospitals? So we, we really seem to have got something wrong there, just fundamentally wrong, you know. And so from a commercial perspective, when you've got women working in recruitment, and, they're, and they're off, they were often the primary breadwinners and if they were in a family situation. So, you know, it was, that was wonderful for us because we were really seeing that empowerment. But that's on a very commercial basis, right? That's a very commercial role. Why is that not the same? It's bananas. It is bananas, and, I, and, and especially teaching. You know, the, education, the only, health, you know. It's the only real work in, in the world is, <laughs> exactly. is things like exactly. nursing, looking after elders. Yeah. And, and it's teaching. not like they don't need qualifications. It's mm. not like they don't need to do intensive studies. So, so how did that how did that happen, you know? Yeah. And in the startup space, as you just mentioned there, there is the possibility to kind of like, in a new space, make new rules. Hey, yeah. Tell us about kind of where you got into uh, angel investment and what kind of things you bring to that and do. Yeah, I guess with angel investing, it was um, – so, <laughs> my, you know, I, I, there's this kind of thing about gambling money, right? Like, you know, some people go to Sky City and do a bit of gambling there. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to do something. My gamble will be in the startup space because really it is a gamble, you know. And so what I decided was I was going to look at my net worth and go, okay, I'm going to carve out a percentage of my net worth, which is roughly around 10%, and I'm going to use that to invest in startups to see if I can help, you know, these, and typically try to support women-led um, startups. So my first one, and I fell into, was because um, someone approached me. Obviously, what happens is when you go through a big exit, suddenly your name's on a, on a hit list, right? <laughs> you, get a, you get a lot of emails. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of approaches, you know, and I hadn't realised this was the case, you know, I'd never had an exit before, yeah. so, you know, woo. And then suddenly you're getting all these calls, and and so I fell into it because I got approached and, and, and got presented a huge number of, and there was one particular enterprise that I thought was really, really had legs and, and really liked the founder and she was, you know, passionate and really smart and all this kind of thing. So, so, and, and really went into it blindly, not knowing anything about angel investing. And I look back now and it's just horrors, really. I go, oh my God, what was I thinking? But actually, it was a really great learning. And, I, and it was an expensive learning, trust me, um, because, you know, in the end, it didn't go anywhere. But what it was for me was learning. It was a really great on-the-job learning about what angel investing is and isn't. And things like, you know, just basic stuff like, you know, you might put your initial money in, but understand that 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 enterprise is going to need more follow-on. And so just really basic stuff, and we're talking, you know, quite a while ago now. So so I think um, it's really moved on. Angel Investing's moved on, and a lot of people are a lot more uh, savvy about it and get educated about it because there's a lot more, uh, I guess, opportunities and ways to learn about it, and people are to teaching. But I think back then it was, you know, buy a beware and just, just – Learn as you go. Yeah, the, yeah. Whole, the whole industry has um, has matured a lot over the last yeah, ten years definitely. as well, hasn't it? In terms of 
how investors can add value yeah. past past money and um and yeah, not not get as because the, the the return rates for the first kind yeah. of five to ten years were um were not great no, for investors. No, <laughs> and, and you know, and and, yeah. and also I it was guess more like, kind of um, yeah. benign. Uh, like, like like gifting, really, yes. benevolence. Yes, it was. And I guess um, there was a two-way street, both for the on, um, the startup um, person and the – and then, you know, both had to learn. You had to really understand what were the dangers and risks and what were the benefits. And, and then also have to just have this mindset of, you know what, it's money you've got to be prepared to lose, you know. And what's really interesting for me is when I first started, I was like, no, I'm a conviction um, investor, I'm, I'm not going to do this kind of piddly ten, twenty thousand, fifty thousand dollars here and there. I'm going to go all in with six figures, you know. So that's what I was doing, you know. And and um, for some that I still believe in that, and others I go, you know what, I don't know enough about that industry, but you know what, happy to just kind of put a small sum in there and just do a bit of a. T- so really, it's horses for courses. Looking at what do you believe in, what do you really um, feel. Where do you feel financially that you can commit and why? Why would you put in six figures there and then maybe, you know, just 10 grand there or 50 grand there, which, you know, to me is, will it make a material difference, you know? like And, and so I'm really about trying to make a material difference in, in something I believe in and all the time knowing that I could lose that money, right? So so you've just got to be really balanced about that because what I, what I get a bit annoyed about is when investors put in, Seriously, for me, you know, it's like, oh, I'll put in 20, 30, 40,000. And then they're all over that company, you know, and I'm like, wow, that money really didn't make a material difference. And yet your expectation of what those people should do for you, jump through hoops and all this kind of stuff. Kind of, I, if I was that entrepreneur, I'd be really annoyed and resentful, you know, and that's what ends up happening. Um, the demands sometimes are unrealistic and don't match what you've actually done for that, you know, that um, investment, that yeah, vehicle. So I'll kind of like, yeah, you're better to go into one of those fund ones, right, and just go put your 50 grand in there and then just leave it and let someone else manage the relationship. And, and having been a founder, you'd know what it's like to have people trying to get in your ear, I guess, and oh, whether it's yeah. helpful or not. Yeah. And, and tell me about governance as, um, you know, you've, you've done a lot with the governance and directorship and still doing a lot there in that space, including being chair of Simplicity KiwiSaver, which, you know, it's one of the most remarkable success stories in uh, the financial space in the country. Yeah. And that's, you know, down to Sam's vision and, you know, obviously he's really passionate. Um, and, you know, he, he's, he's, he, he pokes a few bears and, you know, gets, a, gets in people's, um, and, you know, particularly recently with some of the stuff around simplicity living. I just need to make clear that I'm cheerful the giving, the trust, which is, which to, uh, actually technically owns the KiwiSaver management um, arm, which does all the kind of, you know, um, fund management. So I'm not on the on, on that board, but the I think that was an opportunity for me to step into a role that uh, I really felt that was doing such amazing work, you know, phil- philanthropically, you know, it's it's my give back. So there's a couple of chair roles that I do as a give back, and then there's a couple that are more commercial. So one is an advisory board in the recruitment space, um, and shout out to 84 Recruitment, who, you know, I just think are doing some amazing things. Mark Fisher, he's, he, he you know, when you look at um, recruitment companies and, you know, the the kind of variation between quality and values and all that stuff. And I really um, support Mark's company because of what he 
has put in place and has mirroring that whole culture belief and what they're about. So I'm, I'm on advisory board there, but also on the publicly listed company, I, I, I really didn't want to be chair for a long time for um, boards. I, I was happy to kind of be on the board but not be take the chair role. And I, and you question why. I think a lot of it's to do down to do I want the responsibility and also am I capable and also would I be a target, you know. And so in the end, um, I ended up stepping up to these roles recently because I realised actually um, being a chair is actually quite a sp- an interesting role. A good chair makes huge difference to the board. And I actually actually realised I'm really good at it. And it's a really funny thing for women to actually acknowledge when they're good at something. You know, typically we're all trying to be, oh, no, or shucks, you know, not me, you know, don't, you know. And so actually um, stepping into that has been for me a big um, realisation that actually just own what you're good at and not be, don't apologise for it and just do it, you know. And so recently I've gone, yeah, you know, I am good at this. Gosh, just get on with it. <laughs> just step up and take it on, yeah, you know, it. and do it. But, but like you mentioned there with the being a target and the responsibility, I guess having to pick the things that you work with really carefully is there is so much responsibility in, in, in being yeah. a director, isn't there? Yeah, and especially when you've got someone, you know, who's got a personality like Sam, you know, he's out there saying stuff and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> is that okay? Oh, he's you know. great, eh? Yeah, oh, <laughs> But um, but you know he he's got good intention and he really is doing some stuff that's quite disruptive and I think when you're doing that sort of stuff you you got to expect that people will react you know um, and I think in New Zealand we we don't like conflict typically so I think we we shy away from it but sometimes it doesn't serve us and I think we do need people like Sam who are just going to you know get out there and, and make change. And, and 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 you know won't not everyone will like it and that's fine and I think for me as long as as it's in the right way and it's not um, you know doing anything that's it's silly and saying the wrong things then and and doing the wrong things then I'm 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 okay with it you know and so as a chair I'm I'm there to sort of say okay well you know is this still aligned with what we believe are you doing are we doing the right stuff in the right way and and um, yeah so that 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 role sits comfortably with me on simplicity, yep. A couple of questions we ask everyone, kind of one is uh, what advice you give to people who are starting business today and as someone who is working uh, with a bunch of startups and talking to people in that space, what is the advice that you're giving these founders you're backing? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm um, mentoring um, a few people. I have mentored lots of um, women and and I am mentoring some at the moment. And, you know, I think about, you know, when I look at um, people – Often we don't know how good we are um, and there's lots of doubt and lots of, you know, second-guessing ourselves. And so there's a lot of research that talks about gut gut instinct and how much that actually is not just this kind of intangible thing. It's actually based on real um, a co- collection of experiences, right? So so really trusting your gut, you know, and, and knowing that, that actually – uh, having that confidence in yourself that you actually know what you're doing, because otherwise you wouldn't have fallen into whatever it or, or or have an intention to start something. And I think the other thing is really know your values. Like, what are your values? What are the non-negotiables about values? Because when you understand what that is, then you know who to surround yourself with. Because if they're not aligned to your values, it's just going to make life too hard. Because you're always battling this kind of. Um, conflict between value sets, right? And so 
having having a clear understanding of what those values look like for you and how you want to see them lived in, um, around you. And, and just really basic practical stuff, like really understanding what your liquidity is going to be. Like where's you going to get, where are you going to get capital? How are you going to grow? Um, what will be your limitations? And then just, I, I, look, you know, people say, try to live this balanced life. I don't know many entrepreneurs that are living a hugely balanced life, you know. When you start off, you, you really just have to keep, because it's just this kind of momentum, building a momentum, right? Um, but I, even in doing that, I think if when I look back at our, my time and you know, Madison grew so fast, uh, just keeping perspective about what it is you're doing. It's and I had this really great client who worked at TVNZ. He was um, HR director there, so um, this was quite a long time ago now. So not not currently going through the situation they're going through, which is unfortunate. But anyway, um, and he said I think there was some mess up and and, and something and. And, uh, and I rang to apologise and said, oh, look, you know, I've made a mistake and this has happened. And he said, and one thing I'll always remember, he said, um, did anyone die? I went, no, because <laughs> I was devastated. I, I don't like making mistakes. You know, he said, well, did anyone die? I went, no. He said, well, it's OK then. It's not. It's just a mistake and we'll move on. I went, OK. And so, and so I think, I know it's a crazy um, question, but, you know, when you are in the midst of things and you're so entrenched in stuff, you sometimes lose perspective. And so sometimes I go, well, I sometimes feel like saying to people, just step back and go, did anyone die? No, okay, we can recover from this, you know. And so just keeping perspective on um, where you're at, why you're doing what you're doing, and, and trying to still have fun because when the when it's all happening, you know, you, the, that key person you had, decided to resign, you know, I mean, you know, we just know how awful that is. But going, you know what, this too shall pass and um, and, and having a really good support network around you. Oh, love it. And what will success be for you? Well, interestingly enough, um, I'm looking at, you know, just this, you know, looking at these amazing entrepreneurs who grow and scale businesses and, you know, when you first start something, it's, it's quite easy, well, not easy, but you can surround yourself with that first group of really um, wonderful people that see your vision, believe in what you're doing, and they all sign up and they're all along with, on the journey with you. But as you grow, what's really interesting, you need to then um, bring on people, you know, around that maybe you don't have direct line of sight to, that your people around you have to hire and manage. And it's an interesting space because, of course, I call it the valley of death. You've gone from boutique and then you want to scale up to big. And in the middle, I call the valley of death. So it's things like, you know, do you have the cash? Do you have the right people? Can you lead, can pe- can you lead your people through so that they can lead their people? And that's a really tough space to be in because often the people that maybe you surround yourself with don't maybe have the leadership skills. They have the execution skills. That's why you've got them, right? They're really good doers. They can deliver on your vision. They do the doing. So then you've got to say to them, well, you've got to move them to that level where they have to then do the the same thing that you've been doing with them, and that's showing them a vision, a leadership, you know. And sometimes uh, those people don't have those skills. So how do we get people at that next level to get to become leaders as well? And And some of the things that I've seen – uh, that companies struggle with that. They don't have uh, people that are really great at bringing people alongside. So I think there's a space for that, you know, in the consulting world. There's lots of consultants, and, you know, I don't want to add to that consultant pool. But really I feel like there's a, a really wonderful thing that if we could 
bring everyone into that leadership, great leadership, then, you know, the multiplier effect of that on the New Zealand business and entrepreneur scene and the business scene would be huge, you know. Um, and so, yeah, turning doers into great leaders as well. Yeah, oh, that's so cool. And like you say, you've been doing so much of that levelling up of people in one-to-one to, um, one one and group ways, you know, really scaling that up. Yeah. Uh, so, well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your uh, your story with us today. That's Marissa Fong. Kia ora. So thank you to Marissa Fong, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Jacob Edmonds. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. And keep an eye out for Going Global in your Business is Boring feed, our new podcast with NZTE. Inohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.